Susan Jacobson's son, Gregory, was diagnosed with rhabdomyosarcoma during his senior year at King Philip Regional High School in 2015. On today's podcast, both Susan and Gregory will talk about his battle with this form of pediatric cancer, including a relapse, which happened in 2017. It has now been five years since Gregory received the all clear from his scans and he is now completing his bachelor's degree at Bridgewater State University. Both Susan and Gregory will also talk about the Bubba Strong Charitable Foundation, which as its mission aims to help pediatric cancer families in need, including a scholarship program, which is set up for students at the high school that Gregory graduated from. I hope that you will enjoy this podcast. It is now my pleasure to welcome Susan and Greg Jacobson to my podcast. It is great to have you both here. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Now, I'm going to try to alternate my questions, but on occasion, I'll, I'll uh, have two in a row for one of you. But I am going to start with, uh, with you, Susan, uh, who is Greg's mother, of course. I will take you back over seven years ago to early in 2015. Did you notice that anything was amiss with Greg, or did he have any particular health complaints that were alarming to you and uh, and your husband, Bruce? Uh, nothing before Gregory uh, woke us up very early one morning and said that his he was experiencing jaw pain. Um, and we thought that being that Gregory was 17, typical age for wisdom teeth, uh, that it was probably his wisdom teeth coming in. Um, you know, looking back now, I, I try to think, was there something that we missed or something I didn't see? But Gregory really was a very, and even described by his uh, his team as a very healthy kid that had cancer. Well, that's a that's certainly a good way to put it. And uh, certainly what's happened since then, uh, um, just... Uh, makes that point even stronger. Now, Greg, how long uh, were you having this pain or was it something that just suddenly showed up one night? It was pretty sudden. Um, it was, it kind of lasted a little while just because we thought they thought it was my wisdom tooth and they were planning the surgery to get one of them taken out. So that lasted a couple of weeks, but it really came overnight. And then my opening really started to shrink kind of the next week or so. And that's when I noticed that something kind of was up. So had you, um, and I'll continue this uh, with you, Greg, had you already made an appointment with, a, say, a dentist to remove your wisdom teeth? And, and and you all assumed that was going to be the end of it, I would imagine. Yes. Yeah, I actually went in and I thought they'd pulled the tooth and I didn't know until about a half hour after when the dentist told me that he never pulled it and he actually biopsied a, a tumor in my mouth. So it was the, and I'll go to Susan with this. So it was the bi biopsy in his mouth by his dentist right was- so it, it went to the dentist put him on an antibiotic for a week my husband actually took him they referred us to an oral surgeon in their office again they thought wisdom teeth um my husband took him again the oral surgeon went in and uh came out and said to my husband that you know he wasn't able to extract the tooth um 
but he saw something that gave him some concern and he biopsied that and we should, you know, we would have some information over the next few days. Okay. So when, when the dentist uh, or the oral surgeon said he biopsied it, was your concern right away cancer because you hear the word biopsy and that of course goes with cancer or were you just saying, okay, he's doing that, you know, just for a reason, but, but never thinking that it could turn out to be what it was. So initially, because I wasn't there, I had just returned to work full time um, after taking a long break to be home with the kids and working part time. And my husband happened to have some time off. So I was at a training program in Boston. And when I spoke with my husband, I did panic a bit. We have a very dear friend who has uh, we lived next door to for 18 years and she works in that dental office. So I immediately called her and said, you know, is this something I should really be concerned about? And she said, not yet. Let's let's not go there yet. And it could just be some type of an abscess. Um, so let's give it a few days, but we're not going to go. We're not going to start to think in that direction yet. But of course, to me, you know, Gregory, I my other child had wisdom teeth out. My, You know, Gregory was the only one that when this happened, a biopsy had to be done. So I, I guess I would say, no, I didn't go right to cancer, but it certainly crossed my mind. And my guess is that your very good friend, while saying to you, let's not go there, you were probably going there, I would imagine. And the worst case scenarios as us all being human beings might've been going through your mind. Absolutely. Now, Greg, you were a senior at King Philip Regional High School uh, in Rentham at the time. Where were you when you received this diagnosis? Who gave it to you? And did a professional, uh, whether it be a um, a doctor at a hospital or the um, oral surgeon, explain to you that your life was about to take a different turn? Not really. So the first time I did find out, I, I kind of just came home from school one day and I knew something was up when my dad was home at 3 p.m. because he's usually at work all day and him and my mom were sitting at the kitchen table. So I kind of knew something was wrong, but didn't really know what. And then my mom told me that the oral surgeon called back and that I had a malignant tumor so that they had to do some more work. And then my first visit to Newton Wellesley, I got a lot more info and he was like, this is too over my head. And that's when it kind of all clicked that I was in for something that's going to be hard and challenging when a doctor said it was over his head and he sent us to MGH. Okay. Now I'll continue with you, Greg, on this. Before this occurred, did you know of anyone, and I've had a little bit of experience knowing a few people at King Philip, um, where you were in high school or perhaps elsewhere that had had any type of pediatric cancer? And if so, were you able to wrap your mind around the fact that you were now one of these kids? Not really. No, I, I knew, I knew Henry and another a couple other classmates that had it at King Philip with me at the time. But I mean, in January, I shaved my head for Henry. And then two months later, I was having to shave it on my own for my own reasons. And it just never really was able to wrap my head around it until you're kind of fully into it and know what to expect. You have no idea what to expect. Now, Susan, how long did it take for Greg's doctors to give you and your family 
comfort maybe in what their thoughts were to his prognosis of this cancer? That's my first question. And had you ever, I mean, the term rhabdomyosarcoma is something that I'm guessing you would not heard of. And did it sound more scary when they said it to you uh, than the than than their words of comfort uh, might have uh, eased for you? I had never heard of it before. Um, we did have, you know, a couple of kids in our town, sadly, that had, uh, you know, cancers and, and rare cancers. One had Ewing sarcoma, one had osteosarcoma. Um, Gregory, as he said, was in high school with a couple of kids with sarcomas. Um, really, the only childhood cancer I had really heard of is leukemia. Um, the doctors, by the time we got um, to MGH, we initially were sent to an adult doctor. Gregory was 17, and he really wanted Gregory treated in the pediatric unit, even though he was close to turning 18. He just felt like it was important. Uh, the kids still tend to get a little bit, bit more TLC uh, than you do in an adult unit. So we were then sent to Dr. Allison Friedman at MGH. Uh, when we got to that appointment, my parents were there, my husband and our two other children were there. Um, and there was a team assembled. We had uh, Dr. Friedman, a nurse practitioner, Mary Jo Gonzalez, and a curse, uh, Gregory's nurse, Karen Silvanowitz. Um, they were very encouraging. They said that this form of cancer is treatable and curable. Um, they did not sugarcoat that it would be a very difficult uh, regimen of chemotherapy and radiation. Uh, it would be a long, hard road, uh, but that it was beatable and curable. Um, the, I think the most frightening part at that point for me, there were two parts that were frightening. Um, one was they said if it comes back, there is no other treatment available. And the other was we also saw a surgeon at Mass Ioneer, uh, who really got us to the, the group at MGH. And he, we met with him, he's Dr. Daniel Dashler. And at the time he said he, the tumor could not be removed because what rhabdomyosarcoma does is it's a muscle, it, it invades the muscle, but it's spiral. So it's like an octopus. So by the time Gregory's was located, it had already started to spiral and it just would have been uh, a life altering surgery. Not that the surgery he had wasn't life altering, but this would have been much more difficult. Um, so we were, you know, we were confident and their and their diagnosis and we were confident that we were at the right place um and you don't you really don't think you try so hard not to think beyond kind of what's in front of you for that day because you have to get through those days without a doubt and how long susan did it take from the diagnosis to when gregory actually started the treatment so Gregory saw it was probably within two weeks, just about two weeks, okay. very quickly. The, the, that is obviously very quickly. And you would said before, because before the podcast, I had asked you about the location of the tumor, uh, which was obviously in his mouth. Did, they, did that sound to the doctors like a perhaps a location that they were not familiar with? Or is it just something I had I'd never heard of because... Um, it just sounded to me like it was in a location that is not that normal. No, it does off sometimes present itself 
you know, there are only 375 children diagnosed with rhabdomyosarcoma in the country a year. Of that 375, half of them have a, the tumor is, is a genetic predisposition. Um, Gregory's is not, um, but oftentimes it's behind the eye. It's uh, in the, it's, it's, it's usually headed, head and neck is actually one of the, I think, better places they say, because I think they're able to, it's able to be seen sooner maybe than, than if it's in a muscle in your calf or your leg. Okay. Well, thank you for teaching me that. And and certainly uh, in this situation, it was a good uh, thing to have it where it is because he, um, Greg, you were able to get the the treatment right away, uh, which obviously has helped. Now, again, and, and this will be for Greg. You went to MGH for your treatment, and the first year looks like it consisted of 42 weeks of chemotherapy. 52. 52. Yeah. 52 weeks of chemotherapy. Yeah. That's more than 42, I think. If I'm, yeah. and, I'm, and sometimes I say I'm good in math. Sometimes I say I'm bad in math. Today I'm good in math. <laughs> and you also had, radiation, and then uh, chemotherapy, which you took orally. Now, I read, and my my, my guess is uh, that the information is right, just looking at you, that you had a smile on your face and was not a complainer during that period. How were you able to develop that attitude initially and keep it going uh, certainly for, uh, for so long with what you were, uh, being dealt with. The biggest thing that I always remind, if anyone ever comes to me for advice, it's going through it too. I had someone who I was, I used to work for, he got diagnosed at a later age and his outlook wasn't very good. And he always talked to me about on those days that you do feel pretty good, get out and do something and just forget about what's going on. And on those bad days, just chill out and say you might have a good day tomorrow and you can act normal. So that's always something that stuck with me was just on those days you feel, maybe you don't feel a hundred percent, but if you get out and do something, you feel much better than just smoking around all day. So it just kind of helped the time go by a little quicker when you can be happy versus moping and depressed all the time with it. And Susan, what was Gregory's attitude um, doing for you and your, um, his twin sister, his brother, and your husband, as far as did it at least make you um, aware of the fact that, hey, he he's he's coming into this thing with the best attitude possible, and it should be um, reflecting on the way we are thinking about this and then the way we are treating the situation. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you certainly, there are days where you just, don't want to get out of bed. It's, you know, it's a parent's worst nightmare. And um, when you, when you have a child that, you know, is, is constantly trying to be uh, positive, you know, there certainly were some very difficult days, but uh, my, my oldest son, you know, when, when this first happens, you know, he, he was a baseball player and he said, you know, we're, we're at the plate, we have two strikes Again, where, you know, we have two outs and three strikes and, you know, we're going to work as a team and we're going to get through this. And and he said to us very early on, you know, Baba's attitude is really just amazing to me that that he's just able to have this attitude. And, um, 
you know, he, he helped us get through it as well. You know, it definitely, we definitely all helped one another when we needed to, but we had to be as upbeat and as positive as possible because he was being as upbeat and as positive as possible. Now you live in a very small town uh, in Massachusetts. Uh, not, it's not even in the same town where the high school is at, but I, my, my guess is you're a well-known family. And, and I'm asking Susan this question, what was the support in the town and maybe in the uh, surrounding community for Gregory and for what your family was going through? It was, it was truly amazing. Um, I, I just, I, I will also work for the town that we live in. Um, the support from my boss and the select board in town was amazing. Uh, the school, the support at the school was amazing. Um, the support from neighbors and friends. It, there's just, there's no way to describe it. We are, we are a small town and we have lived here for 28 years and having, you know, three children, a boy and a girl that are twins and another one that's you know, five years older, you get to, you get to know a lot of people. And fortunately I did not have to work full-time when my children were young. So I was very involved in school and volunteering, but the outpouring of um, prayers and offers to do things and, you know, uh, baskets arriving on our doorstop with gift cards. And uh, I mean, it just, it's, it just makes you believe in the human spirit. I, it, it, you know, you, you're just amazed at what people and, and many things I to this day don't know where they came from or, or who did them. Um, it, it's just an amazing, amazing place to live. And we also prior to where we live now, six months before Greg was diagnosed, um, we lived in a neighborhood that that neighborhood and our neighbors were their family and and they just were an amazing support group certainly so great to hear of course and now did you actually not make any meals for one year or so uh <laughs> my family would say maybe that was when i gave up making meals <laughs> um i we did not we had crazy schedules um my husband fortunately is a fantastic cook my my son and my daughter are great cooks uh, Greg and I, we not as much, but um, yes, I, no, we did. I mean, we had restaurants in town. We only have a couple of them. Um, you know, if they saw either one of my children picking up a pizza, they would throw gift cards to them. I mean, it just, it 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 just was, it was a blessing. I, I, you know, I often say, Mark, that while I would never wish this journey upon anyone, uh, the people that you meet along the way and the people that uh, you know, that come out to help along the way are angels. They're, they're gifts. Well, certainly it was very well-deserved. Now, Greg, you did graduate from your initial treatment by going into remission. How long did this remission last? And what was the quality of your life during that period? It was, I think it was about nine, nine to 10 months or so. Um, I had taken a year off after high school to, I was still doing chemo and all that. So I finished all that up and then I had just started school at Bridgewater State University and similar situation as the first time I found out. I was home and my mom and dad both pulled into my apartment at like 1 p.m. after I had scans the day before. So I 
at that point, I kind of knew what that was like. But my quality of life for that year after, or nine months or so after, I was fine. I didn't, I went back to normal, back to school, and I didn't miss a beat too much. Now, originally, the doctors had told you that if there was a relapse, that was not good. Um, because there was, according to what they said, there was no treatment, which did, thankfully did not turn out to be the case. My first question, and this will be to you, Susan, did, did, did Greg show or complain about any concerning signs that would show a relapse or uh, uh, did, did the scans that he would normally have uh, that gave you the indication um, instead of any type of pain or complaining that, uh, that Greg might have had? Uh, no, no complaining or pain. It was uh, routine scans that at that time were being done every three months. Um, and it was picked up on a routine scan and it had returned in the same location. And of course, the first question in your mind and everybody's mind is, well, uh, this isn't good for me. They told me they had no treatment. So when did the doctors then say, okay, the next we are going to do surgery? Did that come pretty much right away? It did come fairly quickly when I got the call from Gregory's nurse practitioner, um, you know, those are those are difficult 24 hours when when it's scan time. Um, she called and she said, you know, the news is not good. The cancer has returned. But we've already spoken with Dr. Deschler at Mass Ioneer. Uh, we've already assembled the team and we we don't want you to be. We want you to, you know, try to stay strong and hang in there. And we are going to get back to you as quickly as we can with information. So I think that they had some indication based on that scan that the uh, it was caught very quickly and that the chemotherapy and the radiation had shrunk the original tumor significantly. Um, and I think probably within 24 hours, Dr. Deschler was calling to say that he felt strongly that um, he could go in and get clean margins. Um, so this was the end of April. We were, we were on call. Basically, they were trying to set up getting an OR and getting a team assembled. Um, we went in to meet with Dr. Deschler. Uh, we brought a, a friend of ours who's very involved in the medical world because, you know, you're, you're kind of in a, in a fog when you're trying to get all this information and, um, you know, hearing what the surgery entailed was quite, quite frightening. Um, but I will say I always wanted the tumor out. I just felt like it should be gone. Um, I can't explain, you know, why, um, we were very confident in Dr. Deschler's, uh, ability to go in and do this. And, um, we were on call for a few days and then very quickly, we got a call that said the surgery scheduled for May, May 9th. So I don't even think a two week period. Uh, it, it wasn't even two weeks from the date of rediagnosis to the date of him going into the hospital and having the surgery. You said that the doctors gave you uh, a very frank assessment, I guess is a good way of putting it, of what the surgery was going to be like. What did they say to you that stood out as far as, gee, this is something that's going to be tough for, for first of all, for Gregory, and secondly, for all of us as we watch this happen? So the, he first described it 
you know, the area that they would be cutting from, which is basically from the middle of Gregory's forehead to under Gregory's chin. It all went, it's hidden in his hairline and behind his ear and under his chin. And they had to re-section, if you will, his jaw. They had to remove teeth. They had to remove a section of his jaw. They had to remove some of his lymphatic system. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the thought of all of that happening in that area was extremely con concerning. Um, it was a long surgery. I remember Dr. Deschler telling us that. Um, he was able to get clean margins. There was only one spot that he had to go in a second time. So that was very encouraging. Um, the expectation was is that Gregory, so Gregory had that surgery done at Mass Ioneer. The expectation was is that Gregory would stay in the hospital five to six days and he would be coming home with us. Um, I think Gregory was in the hospital for 28 days. So there were some complications along the way, um, but we got through it. And um, to see Gregory today, you can see him on camera. I know people won't see him on the podcast, but um, you know, most people don't even recognize that Gregory had some that, that big of an incision and that significant of a surgery. Well, I agree. Uh, looking at Greg, you you would never tell that. Now, Greg, the two weeks, well, you're supposed to come home after six days, you stayed 28 days. So during that time period, and this sounds like it was the most difficult part for you, you had to relearn or rediscover such daily functions as walking and eating. Can you describe what those weeks were like for you? It was long. I mean, the first the first week or so right after surgery, I don't remember much. I, I had a tough time with a lot of the pain and all that. So I kind of just blocked a lot of it out from memory, which was one thing I was pretty good about. But the walking and stuff, I had my sister and my brother. There's one of my favorite pictures, is me hanging on to them by the side. And that part was much easier because I had them to push me and they would, my brother would always come in and say, all right, it's time to get up. We need to go for a walk. So that helped a little bit more. The swallowing and eating stuff was definitely hard. That took a, that probably was two and a half, three weeks before I could get that. It just didn't feel the same. And you're just so used to doing something the same all the time when it's different. It just throws you off for a little while. I can just imagine how difficult that must have been. I mean, you know, you take these things, but, you know, eating and walking and other things just for granted. And when you can't do them, you say, what in the heck is going on here? But with what you were going through, um, uh, 28 days at the time thought it seemed like it was never going to end, but you look back on it and probably it was a fairly, you know, quick transition to get everything back. Um, and, and the important thing of course is that you got them back fully, which is, uh, obviously a great thing. Susan, how would you describe the doctors at both mass general and the surgeon at mass eye and ear and what they did for Gregory? They saved Gregory's life. You know, I am a mom. We are a family. You know, my husband and I and our children and extended family that will forever be grateful to them. They, um, you know, they, although faced with some difficult remnants, I will, from the surgery and the chemotherapy and eating is still not great, easy for Gregory. And he doesn't have full range of motion, um, but he's. He's with us and, and we have to, um, you know, 
as difficult as that can be, and we're dealing with some of that right now, you know, I have my child. And how do you ever, how do you ever express your gratitude for that? It's, um, you know, we, we have Gregory, so I can never express my gratitude to them, but we are just, we will forever be grateful to that, to the team and to the hospitals. Completely understandable. Of course, now, Greg, it's been five years uh, since 2017, since your scan after surgery was clean and subsequent scans uh, have proven also to be clean. I know that you've had a couple of issues, but how have you been feeling in general? And is your strength returned to where it was before you got sick? Yeah. So I, the last couple of years, I mean, honestly, it wasn't until the last year I've had some issues with teeth and stuff, but before then it really, I have felt fine. I'm as strong as I was before. I'm a lot smaller than I was. Honestly, I was much bigger in high school and I lost a lot of weight when it first started. So I'm much smaller now, but strength and energy and all that's definitely back to normal for me for sure. And I'm going to uh, stay with Greg on this next question. Now, your brother Mac is five years older than you. He's also the author of the synopsis on your website about what you went through. And I had no idea that it was your brother that wrote it until I saw it at the end. I was in, inordinately impressed with the way that he wrote that. So obviously uh, he was very, very involved and knows you very well. And you have a twin sister, Catherine, who just six, a few months before you were diagnosed, she was diagnosed with uh, uh, type 1 diabetes. Can you talk about them and what they've meant to you over the last seven years and and, and even uh, before that? Yeah, they've me and my sister, obviously being a twins, have always been really, really close. We've always had the same friend groups and always hung out. So we've always been really, really close and inseparable pretty much. And then my brother's always been that very competitive older brother that always wanted to push me and push me into everything. So I think the combination of them two really helped me get through it much easier. My sister was there for me when I needed something just to complain about anything. And then my brother was there to push me to get out of bed on my good days. And me and him would go golfing a lot. And he stayed home even after he was done with college to help get me out of the house and all that. So I think them two definitely helped me probably the most for sure. You know, the sibling situation can be a very difficult one, and it's a a huge part of the so-called village of people that are involved in any pediatric cancer diagnosis. And and to hear that uh, your sister and brother was so helpful to you um, is is common, but it's always good to hear uh, that it sounds like they may have even taken this to the next level, which, of course, was so important to you. Now, Susan, I would like to ask you now about Mac and your daughter. And and the way I'm going to ask this is from the point of view of how do you think that Greg's rhabdo uh, myosarcoma battle had, had had and possibly has still affected them? Um, I think for Mac, it um, he was 23 years old when Gregory was diagnosed, so a young man. But I think... Um, it, it catapulted him even more into adulthood. He really wanted to, um, he, like Gregory said, he he had finished college and he stayed home. He didn't move out. He wanted to be there to help. 
He wanted to be there for his sister. Um, he was a tremendous uh, supporter for my husband and I. Um, so I think it it really catapulted him into uh, adulthood, e- even though he was a young adult, um, you know, fresh out of college. We don't know everything yet. Right. So um, I think that and I think Mac took as a firstborn, Mac took his responsibilities very seriously and um, just wanted to do whatever he could do to help everybody, you know, to help Gregory, to help his parents, to to help everybody. Um and Catherine, I, I, you know, I often say to people, and Gregory actually was the first person to bring this to my attention. Gregory will say that emotionally he thinks this was most difficult on Catherine. Um, I agree with him. Um, she was dealing with her own diagnosis of a type one diabetes. Um, it was not something that existed in our family. It kind of came out of left field. Um, and we were just kind of all rolling into getting getting her settled with that. And, and this happened and, and they are inseparable and they always have been inseparable. And I don't think it's a bond that any one of us can understand unless we're a twin. Um, and, you know, Catherine went on to college, didn't live, commuted. My husband and I really pushed her to do that. Uh, I'm not sure now, Mark, whether looking back, whether that was the right decision, but at the time we thought it was the right decision. But um, it's it's been really heartbreaking to watch her suffer through uh, this with her brother. Um, and, you know, she's an amazing young woman. She's a physical education, health and wellness teacher in Needham. Um, and she works with some disabled kids part time. You know, it, they're there when you're a parent and you have your children and their siblings and their squabbles and there's age differences. The one thing I think that you always hope is that if they need one another, they can all come together and be there for one another. And um, they certainly proved that that they were there for one another and what amazing kids and siblings they were. And, uh, you know, they were in the hospital every day during the surgery. Um, you know, Catherine was smuggling. We got Gregory a puppy in October. Uh, he always wanted a dog. He said it took cancer for his parents to finally get him one. Um, Catherine was smuggling that puppy into hotels and hospitals. And, um, you know, so they they both really were just amazing siblings and amazing children. And, um, you know, we we really we certainly handled it as a family. And um, it it was heartwarming to see as a parent. Do you think that Catherine's choice of career um, uh, with what she's doing now, part of which is to work with disabled children, um, was influenced any at all by what Gregory went through? You know, I think that for both of my children, that Mac and Catherine, I think that, you know, they learned some very hard lessons at young ages. And so I, I do think that... Um, you know, you hope that your children are kind people, right? But I think that this instills a different kind of kindness in you. Um, and I think that they both really try hard to to go a little bit further if they see somebody that they think that they can help. And I do believe that was there before. Um, but I just think that once you go through something like this, it just changes your perspective. You know, I say all the time to people, 
you know, I was somebody that sweated the small stuff. I really tried not to sweat the small stuff now. So we all take away from uh, this experience. It's changed all of us in, in similar ways, but it's also changed each of us individually. I can well imagine that it has, and that happens pretty much with everyone I've spoken to as far as this goes. It just completely changes your perspective on what was important at one time is not important after after this diagnosis. Now, Gregory, you're finishing up your bachelor's degree at Bridgewater State. How's that going for you? And what type of career are you looking to pursue? It's been it's been tough. It's been long. Um, like I said, I took the year off. And then I got diagnosed and did the surgery in uh, May. And then I did another round, more rounds of radiation in July and went back that fall. Probably should have taken some time off and rushed it. And then COVID hit. So we got sent home. So it's, it's definitely been challenging right now for school, but nothing that I can't do with what I've done in the past now. And you have a career in mind that you're pursuing? Not really. I'm in golf right now. I do golf fittings and I, do all that with golf and I love it, but I haven't really decided what I want to do yet. I might stick with golf, but we don't know yet. Well, you've got plenty of time and uh, certainly a, a bright future for you. Now I'd like to turn to your, and I'll ask Susan the first question about this, your Bubba Strong Charitable Foundation, which of course was established in honor of Greg. I think I'm a hundred percent correct on this. Uh, uh, safe assumption that Baba is Greg's nickname? Yes. <laughs> Can you tell us the mission of your foundation? Sure. So the mission of our foundation is to help children or families who have a child uh, not only battling cancer, but any uh, life-threatening illness. Um, we do primarily, it is primarily, we have definitely helped more families with children who have, uh, who are fighting cancer. But if another family is brought to our attention with a life-threatening illness, um, one of our most recent grants was just given to a family traveling to California for their child to have heart surgery. And there's only one surgeon in the country that does it at Stanford University Hospital. Um, they're, a, they're a family from Boston. And um, so we, we will typically help whenever we can. Um, Bubba, the Bubba Strong Charitable Fund was initially our, our neighbors um, had a golf fundraiser and they recruited uh, many neighbors and many, many close friends and family members. And they put together a golf tournament to help us with the expenses of staying at hotels. We had to stay at hotels in the city uh, a lot. Um, we were a few miles below the Ronald McDonald House. Um, you have to live so many miles from Boston. So we didn't we we weren't able to have that and uh, the chemotherapy made gregory very ill so we had to stay close to the hospital um and it was a huge success our community turned out our family turned out friends of friends turned out and after that and well greg when it, when greg went into remission i was sitting with a few of the my friends and i and you know we all kind of decided that we wanted to continue that and we wanted to did we have enough people that would be interested in helping um, our, our neighbor, George McLaughlin got the, got the nonprofit off the ground, if you will, with all of the application and paperwork and, uh, his wife, Diane's been the president. We have many, uh, friends that sit on the board, dear friends and family members. Um, 
And so for the last seven years, we've held a golf tournament and a bowling tournament, and we provide families uh, with money to pay mortgages, to pay bills. Um, the Lions Club of Norfolk, Massachusetts has supported us. Uh, we had an idea that during the pandemic, um, actually prior to the pandemic, you know, we, when you think about a child being ill and having cancer and you think about people that have to take their child on public transportation for their chemotherapy treatments, it's just unimaginable, you know, especially to me knowing how ill my child got and it affects every child differently. So we established something called Bubba's Bus and we pitched it to the Lions Club uh, uh, and they funded us and they continue to help fund that program. And we give gift cards uh, that say Bubba's Bus on them and they're given to parents to use for Uber or Lyft or taxis or whatever transportation, mode of transportation they can use. Um, so we've been really, been very successful. We have a lot of people that work really hard to put it together. It's definitely a team effort. Um, our president just um, stepped down after seven years and she's turned the reins over to Mac and um, she's going to remain on the board. So we, we're excited about continuing, continuing to help families. Such an important thing to do, of course. Greg, are you involved outside of playing in the golf tournament? Are you involved in the foundation at all? Yes. Yep, I am. And 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 what are your roles there? You know, I mean, it's just kind of all with the meetings and trying to offer. Me, there's me, Mac, Danny, and Pat. We are kind of the, the golfers of the, the membership. So we kind of offer our input on how to run the tournament and all that stuff as a golfer more so than as fundraising per se. Now, Susan, one of the things that you did not mention uh, about what you're doing with the foundation, which I find fascinating, is the scholarship program for King Phillips students. Can you talk about that um, and the logistics behind it and how it's working for you? Sure. So uh, Cheryl Rowe, who you know at King Philip, was very, very supportive to Catherine and Gregory during their senior year, well, both the, when both of them were diagnosed with their separate illnesses, and um, she's a lady that really goes the extra mile for kids that are, you know, not only children that are sick, but kids that may be struggling for other reasons in school. And um, we really thought that it was important to, you know, we we knew that there were several families at King Philip who had children that had lost battles to cancer, pediatric cancer. And um, we felt strongly that we wanted to, to give back to the high school and uh, where all three of our children went to school. So we give out uh, two scholarships to two King Philip seniors. Uh, they do have to write an essay and it's about how someone in their life who's had cancer, how it's affected them uh, or, or life-threatening illness. and. Um, you know, we do, we get a lot of, of uh, applications that kind of run the gamut, right? So some are, you know, elderly grandparents that passed from cancer, and some are from kids themselves that you would probably not ever realize had cancer. You know, they had it when they were much younger, or uh, one student wrote to us about giving a bone marrow transplant to his one-year-old sister when he was three, and, you know, it, it's just amazing to read these stories that come in. 
um, a committee is formed because as you can imagine for the first probably four or five years uh, until last year, you're right. We knew many of the children that would be submitting these and you, you know, you want, you didn't want to be biased. You didn't, you know, it had to not be picked because your heart broke for a particular family. And so we formed a committee of three and the treasurer um, redacts all of the names and the committee of three presents four applications and we vote on on who the people are that will be selected. And Gregory is correct because this was the first year that the two young uh, women who were selected this year, I did not know them. I had not met them. I didn't know siblings, you know, or any family members. Um, but it's important. And we've talked at a uh, not last meeting, but maybe the meeting before, maybe increasing either the dollar amount to two kids or do we spread it out to four kids? And so it's something that I hope we can continue for a very, very long time. And I'll um, stay with you on this question with Mac now running it. He's 28 years old. So 31 now. Well, now, well, uh, he's still not ready for Social Security, however. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so at 31 years old, obviously, he's he's a very young man who has, I'm sure, great energy. Has he talked to either one of you about expanding the um, uh, the foundation? And if so, uh, is there anything specific that he's talked to you about? Yeah, so this year for the first time, we had two corporate sponsors. Um, not, not local folks, but uh, one of his collegiate baseball teammates uh, who lives in Buffalo, Buffalo New York. Uh, secured two corporate sponsors for us. Um, Mac has also, we've just voted on a new board member, somebody that's very involved in the organization that Mac works for um, with their fundraising group. They have a social responsible fundraising group. Um, We've just voted her on board. So I do think that we have had conversation. I do think Mac believes that um, we can grow this through some corporate money and sponsorships Um, because in order to keep this going for a lengthy period of time, you have to bring in some new, some new blood each year. Um, This year, you know, we were, we were shocked and honored and our golf tournament sold out in 12 hours. Um, And, and, but you are seeing a little bit of a change, you know, you're seeing uh, now that Max friends are older and established in jobs, more of those young men are coming in and, and bringing in foursomes. Uh, Gregory's got a group of good friends that come in and bring in a few foursomes. Catherine is at, you know, work and friends brought in a few foursomes. So in order to keep the the foundation moving and making money and going forward, you have to, you have to be looking at that. And I do think that he does want to really look to try to involve some corporate sponsorship. Greg, looking back, and we talked before briefly about how people are changed with this before your uh, diagnosis, you know, when you were growing up and, and, and well into your teens, were you a certain way or was your personality a certain way? And looking and now seven years, well, uh, uh, seven years later, is there one or two things about you that you could say, yes, this is real. This is, this is what I am now, and I might not have been before I got sick. I wouldn't say I've changed too, too much. I 
kind of been always a level-headed and pretty easygoing person. Um, I definitely changed afterwards for not a whole lot, but it just kind of puts a lot of stuff into reality. Like, I think when I was younger, I was a little naive that everything was going to be easy and it was just going to go well and it was going to go high school, college, get a job, get a house, and then adversity hits and you kind of get smacked in the face a little bit. So I just think I'm a little bit more realistic now as when I was a little bit younger, I was just always easygoing and happy-go-lucky. And now it's just a little bit more realistic and comes with age and obviously what I went through too. Well, what what you went through is uh, quite an ordeal. And and of course, no one would ever wish that on anyone. Susan, what are the one or two lessons that you've learned from Gregory? Um, I've learned from Gregory to never give up. And I've learned from Gregory to try to keep smiling. Those are two great lessons because uh, this is the way that uh, that you, Gregory, handled your whole situation. Where can people get in touch with you if they'd like to know more about the foundation and about your family in general, because it's quite a story and certainly worth someone taking the time to find out as much as they can about the Jacobsons, about the Bubba Strong uh, Charitable Foundation. Uh, They can go to www.bubbastrong.com and they will see Greg's smiling face. And they can read Greg's story and they can uh, see what events we're, we're scheduling for the w- winter and, and summer. And um, it's, you know, I tell people, uh, I tell people all the time to, to read the story because it is a happy ending. Um, you know, there are people that don't have happy endings. Um, and my, my, you know, husband reminds me of, of that, you know, where where as as difficult as it's been, we we um we made it through it. We we got through it, and um and and there there are there are some, a lot of happy endings out there, and um but we also have to work hard to help the people that don't have the happy endings. Well, and you're doing a great job of that, obviously. And as we come to the end of this podcast, first of all, I'd like to congratulate you, Gregory, on coming through the most difficult situation imaginable and hopefully and your life will continue on the upward track that it's going on now. I want to thank both of you for coming onto my show to talking so beautifully about what went on uh, from 2015. Um for the next uh, seven years and uh, the great ending that, that Susan, you just mentioned uh, that is happening for you. And I want to wish you the best of luck as time goes on. Thank Thank you you. so much for having us. It was my pleasure. And you have a great day. You too. Thank you for listening to Susan and Gregory talk about what Gregory went through beginning seven years ago in 2015. It is always nice to see a successful outcome to a pediatric cancer battle, and Gregory is well on his way to being able to lead a happy and fulfilling life, which is a goal that thankfully he is able to pursue. This is Mark Levine, and please tune in on Monday when I will speak with Mark Girolametti, who will talk about his daughter, Ava, who was one of the first patients at Boston Children's Hospital to receive CAR T-cell therapy to help in her battle with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which she was diagnosed with in 2016, just before her seventh birthday.